Hello, everybody. I'm Clay Breed, and it's showtime here again on this beautiful global warming Saturday, beautiful global warming year, three years in a row, right here on AM Radio 1180 WFYL, here in southeast Pennsylvania, Delaware Valley, folks. We are experiencing another great summer here, and it'll be another great winter, I'm sure, as we haven't had more than 30 inches of snow the last three years in Pennsylvania, thanks to this global warming. We have to thank global warming for all of this, folks. Thank you very much for the for the more temperate climate we're living in, the, the cooler summers and warmer winters. Thank you, uh, global warming, for that. And thank you that the sun is getting warmer and it is warming the planet and we're getting more greener and we have a biomass of green energy that's that's the size of North America, larger on planet Earth than we've had just a few years ago. So thank you again for being with us today on this Saturday. So thanks. We're going to jump right into it. We want to get a little bit into what's going on right now around the, the country. And what's to I mean, Trump just pled not guilty to charges relating to January 6th pro. And uh, basically, he's uh, he's vowing to take action in 2024. We're going to talk a little bit about that as well. We're going to talk about the indictment and how it's a sad day for America. And of course, it's no coincidence for uh, a biased, ju- biased judge to be in place. I mean, gee, what a surprise that is. And we're going to talk a little bit about oh, Biden's health and his mental, his mental health is worse than his physical health. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And we're going to talk about the, the, the debt ceiling, the, the U.S. debt rating, I should say the credit rating, as we've been downgraded again for just the second time in American history, that the debt, uh, our U.S. debt credit rating downgraded only the second time in US, U.S. history. This is an amazing wake-up call for all of us. We're going to get into that as well and a whole lot more. So fasten your seatbelts as we jump right into it. Folks, well, it's no surprise that Trump pled not guilty to charges relating to January 6th probe. I think what's compelling on all of this is what we understand is that in the indictment that was put out there, what they left off was they left off what Trump said in his statement. I thought that was very compelling. So what you have is you've got um, an indictment that basically stated that Trump uh, you know, incited people and, and whatnot, but they left off what he said in his in his speech. I think that's really sad when he said protest peacefully, okay, and legally. And that's what he said, and that's what I think is compelling in all this is that they missed on all that. I mean, but uh, he was arraigned at the Elijah Barrett uh, pretty much federal courthouse right around 4 p.m., uh, on uh, the other day on, on the charges, conspiracy to defraud the U.S., conspiracy against the rights, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, and obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding. And uh, the grand jury returned a federal indictment uh, a few days ago in special counsel and, and Jack Smith's probe. So that's what happened. And again, uh, I mean, basically, uh, have, despite having lost the defendant, was determined to stay in power, the document alleges. So Trump's going to get an opportunity to relitigate all of this that happened on in the election from 2020. In other words, he's going to wake up Republicans again as to the cheating that did, in fact, go along with these mail-in ballots. I think everybody, including Democrats, are full aware of what happened with the mail-in ballots. I mean, in every every instance where the mail-in ballots were used, they ended up counting votes that shouldn't have been counted. 
and we know that mail and ballots are the are, are the are the are the place where the bacteria grows, if you will. And it's like it's like a food truck. It's like getting it's like getting uh you know eating uh you know uh you know like eating uh Chinese food off a food truck. You know, like the the the, the chop suey comes out of the food truck and they take it out of there, and it's just it's just the bacteria soup in some of these food trucks. And I just think it's interesting and how. I just think it's really sad. I mean, this is what you expect from mail-in ballots. What you expect from mail-in ballots is you expect you expect inaccuracies. You expect votes to be counted without signature verification. You expect that. You expect the fact that they're not verifying people are who they are. You're expecting ballots to go to homes where the people whose ballot it is isn't living in that home anymore. You're expecting... Uh, you know, ballots to be mailed in that don't have the correct signature verification on it. They didn't follow the correct process of signatures and how signatures are to be processed. Here in Pennsylvania, then got several envelopes that have to be signed and the ballots have to be processed particularly correctly. And when they're not, they're not supposed to count the ballot. Well, I mean, we can expect with mail-in ballots that you'll see a lot of people not process those ballots correctly. You can expect it. It happens. And then you can honestly expect to see the uh, the ballots that that are counted anyway. I mean, they're counted even though they're, they're even though they were they weren't processed. So in Philadelphia, for instance, in twenty twenty, they didn't they didn't cast out one percent of all the ballots that came in. So here you have the first year ever that people are processing signature ballots. I should say mail in ballots. And the process of having to have these ballots processed a particular way, i.e. in certain envelopes and signed in a certain way and mailed, okay, mailed out with a particular amount of postage on them. I mean, only 1% of all those ballots were disqualified. I think that's a sin, okay? We can know that it should have been closer to 10 or 15%. I mean, at the very minimum, we know that these ballots went to homes that that were dead people. We know that they cleaned the voter rolls after 2020. They cleaned the voter rolls. What's interesting in Pennsylvania in 2020, the Democrats had a 600,000 vote advantage in Pennsylvania. Today, they have about a 300,000 vote advantage in Pennsylvania. Okay. So we know there are hundreds of thousands of Democrats that were uh, omitted from these ballots. We have some Republicans too, but we ended up purging the ballots of hundreds of thousands of voters that were no longer on the the voting rolls in these counties, especially in Philadelphia County. What's really compelling is that the Philadelphia County election observers, when they process these mail-in ballots, again, did not verify signatures. They're not professionals at it. They didn't have the machinery to do it. So what they did was they, the, the state legislature and their infinite wisdom, and I say state legislature because they were Republicans at the time who thought mail-in ballots were a good idea. So they process all these mail-in ballots, and then they didn't make sure we had the machinery in place and the apparatus in place to handle this many mail-in ballots. So allegedly, there was about 2.9 million mail-in ballots that were mailed out, and we know there was over 300, through, I should say 3 million, there was more than 3 million counted. So we know there was like hundreds of thousands of mail-in ballots that were counted that obviously weren't a part of the total that were mailed out. And then when the state was approached on that, the state simply said, well, I mean, you know, that was a, you know, web page issue or something. In other words, it was overlooked. I mean, Trump lost the state by less than 80,000 votes. And quite frankly, I think he won the state by hundreds of thousands of votes. This is what I believe. 
Um, and I know Trump knows it, and I know a lot of our Republican friends in Pennsylvania know it. So when Trump gets to relitigate all of this, right now in Pennsylvania, Trump leads absent-minded Biden by a, by a few points in, in overall polling. Uh, Trump actually is is beating anybody here in Pennsylvania right now. Um, even absent-minded, even stroke victim John Fetterman said that Trump can win Pennsylvania. I mean, it's not out of the question. People need to take him very seriously because he can win. Trump's got a lot of support. He's got over 90% of Republicans that want him reelected, and you've got about 8 or 10% of Democrats and about 60% of independents. This is what Fetterman knows. And so, uh, you know, even though it may only be about 7 or 8%, of maybe, maybe 9% of Democrats, but because you've got other people in the race, like Kennedy in the race and, and then uh, Cornell West in the race, you got these people that are actually in the race that might take away some of these Democrat votes. And it could maybe take O'Biden down from getting, you know, 95, 94% of the Democrats to maybe getting 80% of the Democrats. And if that was to happen, O'Biden would lose by 10 points because O'Biden won't get more than, well, he won't get more than 5% of Republicans of that. And he's not going to get more than 30% of the independents. So I, I just think that you're going to find people like Kennedy, Robert Kennedy Jr. get some votes here. As it stands now with the current situation on the ground, if there's a third party in Pennsylvania, I believe that third party will take a lot from the, the Democrats. And I think Trump will hold the Republicans together in the independence. Yet. Trump's got a coalition. This is what Fetterman said. And what's really interesting is he basically stated the obvious. So this is a this is a moment where a blind squirrel finds a nut. John Fetterman actually found some actual logic and actually connected with some sensibility when he made these statements. I found it very interesting. But uh again, uh, you know, he he I mean it's it's true. Okay. It's it's what it is. So the Democrats are going after Trump. They're wanting to do these indictments. They're trying to go through these indictments. And what they're overlooking is that Trump actually gets to relitigate this. He's going to be able to, he's going to have subpoena power. He can actually subpoena people to come testify. He can actually create, relitigate this on a national stage and talk about how these mail-in ballots were a farce. Talk about these, these, uh, these abnormalities that came in through the data waves and how we had nine in Pennsylvania. We were that Trump was up nine hundred thousand votes at at midnight in Pennsylvania election night, and then before long, that and you know five days later, he's down eighty thousand votes. So this is what he's talking about. And this is going to be very interesting, and very compelling, and I just think it's uh, people are just going to have their own moment of I don't believe this. People insist that these mail-in ballots are handled correctly, and in Pennsylvania, Trump's going to put them on. He's going to put them on trial. He's going to show people in Pennsylvania. He's going to show people in Michigan. He's going to show people in Georgia and in Arizona how their mail-in ballot system is failing their elect their their election integrity. He's going to show them that, and I just think that this is going to be very compelling. You know, so he's going to get to do this. I think that's a, an oversight. I think on, on Jack Smith, uh, it's really compelling because uh, he's going to. This is an oversight of him, and I just think it's interesting. Uh, you know, that Smith has got his, his way about him. I mean, I, I just, uh, you know, this is, this whole, this whole latest fake case is brought by crooked Joe Biden and deranged Jack Smith. And it's gonna, it's gonna be moved to an impartial venue. It could likely be moved to an impartial venue, such as the politically unbiased nearby state of West Virginia. 
you know, impossible to get a fair trial in D.C. I think everyone knows that, which is over 95% uh, never Trump. And I think that's what's really uh, compelling on this is, too. Uh, they're going to move. They're going to actually push this for a venue change. I think they can because if it's a federal case, I don't think they, they can they can run from this. The Supreme Court's going to likely weigh in on this. But the, the indictment is all about election interference, which is, you know, it, it's it's a. Uh, it's a high crime embarrassment to our nation, indeed the world. Uh, it's it's a it's it's basically a uh, you know uh, this is the this is the crooked again Joe Biden and deranged Jack Smith show. That's what this is. But it's the third indictment against the against Trump, who's the leading Republican candidate in the party, and I just think that's compelling. Um, you know, he's not just up by five or ten or twenty points; he's up by like forty points. In a Republican primary, Trump is is getting about about sixty points in the polls. I mean, you know, you got you got DeSantis running at about eighteen or nineteen, and everybody else is running under ten. I mean, it's Trump's show. Combine all of them, he's still getting all the all the all the election support. The Republicans want every time he's indicted, he wakes Republicans up to the unfair treatment he gets. I just think it's really compelling. You know, don't miss that. I just think, and you know, it's really, it's really, uh, it's really sad. I mean, look, I think, and I've heard this said by commentators, but you know, Trump's lawyer should ask the the Supreme Court to stop us on, on these un, unconstitutional prosecutions. You know, it's really true. I mean, the, the special counsel Jack Smith uh, is not a presidential appointee, and he's using the indictments of Trump as a political weapon to tarnish Trump. As a candidate, that's the bottom line. He's, you know, Jack Smith is uh, is uh, is asking federal judges in both the documents case filed in Miami and the January 6th case filed in Washington to carry out a speedy trial. That he, you know, Jack Smith said it seemed designed to affect Trump's chances in the upcoming election and to divert Trump's time and money from campaigning to defending himself. This is all about that. That's what this is all about. The fact is, it's the kind of legal warfare against the presidential impossible, if not likely opponent to the current O'Biden presidency. And it's it's not only unprecedented in the history of our republic, but it's going to destroy our election electoral system for all time. I mean, this is where I look at it. You know, it's going to destroy our electoral system. It's not something that should be led into the to the various district courts or local courts to sort out in the course of regular regular judicial proceedings. I mean, just, you know, this is part of the intended strategy by these prosecutors. You know, they're engaged in this assault on our electoral system, and they, they you know, they, they shouldn't be rewarded for their behavior at all, and that's what this is. They should be, like, called out on it. You know, it's, I mean, they put this in a largely Democrat-friendly jurisdiction to tarnish the president and earn his campaign. We see this. You know, that he, even if, if he were to get acquitted or to overturn convictions on appeal, it would be long after the election. But th- this is this is the process that's the, that's the killer here. It's the process that's the killer. And they know it. They're playing the process by unloading all these indictments, by taking Trump off the campaign trail, by depleting his resources, by influencing voters. That's what they're doing. They're using the process, again... To, 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 to kill this campaign 
They want to unload these indictments and they want to take Trump off the campaign trail. Okay, deplete his resources by influencing his voters and having him spend all his time fighting all this. You know, I mean, by the way, as Trump, you know, I mean, the, the Trump legal team needs to seek and probably seek an emergency hearing before the United States Supreme Court, you know, to not resolve legal disputes, but to at least temporarily halt the abomination of this legal warfare that is unfolding in front of us where Democrats and never Trump or Republicans are unashamedly celebrating the use of the courts by the O'Biden weaponry and it is no justice department. The Democrat district attorneys to further visit to further their, their political wishes of the, the rest of the nation and watches in shock. I mean, this is what's going on. This is legal warfare requires unprecedented response by the only constitutional body left that could do anything about it. And that's the U S Supreme court. I asked the bottom line, this would be the Supreme Court defending the Constitution. It's as simple as that. This is serious to the survivability of the Republic. This is one political party trying to destroy another. This is one political party trying to monopolize the elections, federal law enforcement, and the entire justice system. That's the bottom line. They get away with it, it's all over. And that's where I'm at with it. I just don't want to miss that. You know, and I just think it's really, really amazing. And, you know, it's really, it's amazing. Uh, you know, let's let's take a look a little bit. I'm going to jump gears on this a little bit, but we might come back to this in a little bit. But I want to talk a little bit about the jobs numbers that came out. Because the job numbers, are, you know, another 170,000 jobs were created in July. And, you know, again, in, 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 since, you know, the beginning of the year, we probably created, oh, probably about 900,000 jobs in the country in, you know, since January, 900,000 jobs. The problem is we've had over 2 million people get out of the job, the workforce. We've had over 2 million people leave the working America. Okay. So we've lost another 1.1 million workers in, in the workforce. The employment numbers in the U.S. are down over a million people, you know, in the last seven months, even though we've picked up 900,000 jobs, we've lost well over 1.3 million, 1.2 million. I mean, we've lost a lot of jobs. You've lost probably about about two, I should say, well, I, I misspoke there, about two and a half million. You know, in seven months, we've lost about two and a half million jobs. And we've picked up, like I said, since January, about 900,000 jobs. So you can do the math. That's 1.3 or 4 million people that left the workforce. That's bad. That's what's going on. The workforce is declining. Okay, inflation, nations running out of control. We have a we have an energy department right now in Department of Energy, and I guess can, can, can our listeners guess what the Department of Energy is supposed to do in Washington? Can we like put a guess out there? What what do our listeners believe is the role of the Department of Energy in the U.S. government? Well, if you're saying that you think it's the Department of Energy's job and their role to come up with an effective efficient energy policy to power our country and to power our economy and to uh power what you know our you know basically to power our economic growth if that's what you're saying is the, the role and the job of the department of energy you are correct that is the job and the role of the department of energy but what is our Department of Energy doing? What, what are we exactly doing in the Department of Energy? What is our energy policy in America? What are we trying to achieve 
in the department manager. You see, this is what we got to ask our question, because I should say, this is the question we have to ask. We have to get an answer to. When we have the, the director of the Department of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, telling Americans that if they want to save money on gas, there, there is no policy to drive down gas prices. There is no gas policy to increase gas production. There is no fuel policy or energy policy to increase energy production, therefore driving down energy costs. No, she said, so she, there is no policy. She was asked the question, how can Americans save money on energy? She said, well, I mean, she, she could have answered the question by we're coming up with an effective, efficient policy to increase the flow of energy into our country. So as we can drive down the cost for middle-class Americans and all Americans across the spectrum, and so we can increase the, improve the, the pursuit of happiness in the lives of every American. That could have been what she said, but it's not what Jennifer Granholm said. She did not talk about a successful policy. She did not even talk about how to drive a successful policy through Congress. She didn't have a plan. She instead made a comment that her that the if Americans want to control the cost of energy in their lives, then to buy an electric car, go buy an electric car. That was what her solution is. But when you have these kind of incompetent people that are leading this country's public policy, you know, like a director of the Department of Energy that has no energy policy, or the director of Homeland Security that has no border policy or the director of the Center for Disease Control that has no health policy, no policy for, for helping Americans cure diabetes, when diabetes literally is, is, the, is the root cause of diseases and most everyone, unless it's genetically caused, it's the root cause of virtually every illness Americans suffer from has to do with the, 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 the existence of diabetes in their lives. Diabetes is the beginning of the end in our health care. We can know that if you get diabetes, you will not survive with it very long. You'll die from it. Or you'll die from a disease that is caused from it. Organ failure or something else that's caused from having diabetes. And so when diabetes is the root cause and, and is a systemic problem, a real, by the way, systemic problem in this country, diabetes is, you would wonder why our director of CDC does not have a plan to 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 combat diabetes. I mean, I, I don't get that. I mean, what's the plan? Okay, what is the plan to combat diabetes? Well, I know let's let's force COVID vaccinations. Or let's talk about COVID and the COVID vaccination when they've known all along now it's out there public. They've known all along that the COVID vaccinations uh actually gave COVID to some people and actually helped spread COVID to other people who didn't have COVID. So they know that now about the vaccination, and they also know that it had a whole lot of side effects. They now are learning that uh, it, they now know from the, batch, the batches that were used, the batches that were released into the public, and the batches that the, that the, the vaccinations came out of, from all the batches that were released and all the batch numbers that were released, were, were written down on the vaccinations that were administered throughout the public. They now know that one out of a thousand people suffered from an adverse effect from this. That's what they estimate, that this was a study that was done in Europe. The Center for Disease Control, if you will, that the administration there in Europe actually did a study on this. 
They said one out of a thousand people suffered uh, an adverse reaction from this vaccination. And they also they also attributed that out of those one out of a thousand, 25 percent of those people, that was a fatal side effect. Okay, they died from it. So this is very serious. And I think if Americans had known that that the side effects were one out of a thousand in vaccinations and that of those 25 percent were fatal, then they would they would probably not give their consent very much to getting vaccinated on a, from a virus that had a death rate of less than well, a less than less than a half a percent. OK, we know that. OK, we know that. We know that it was about a half a percent of people died from this. And we also know that of those uh, half a million people that died in this country, we know that about 300,000 of those people were over 70 years old. We know that too. So when you look at anybody under 70 that got vaccinated, virtually nobody died from it. Okay, they got the virus. Okay, but the side effects are different. The vaccinated side effects are different. This actually happened. But again, this is what incompetency looks like. So a competency that's creating the, the 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 health policies in this country. This is what they look like. They can't, you know, they 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 think men can get pregnant, and also they believe again that uh, vaccinations can be prevented by a cloth mask. Okay, and that you know they they understand they can out virus a virus. That's who these people are. Well, again, the same people creating that policy, the same people driving down energy production, the same people that are affecting the you know, the jobless numbers and whatnot, our economic or lack of economic growth in this country, okay, the border security problems, all the, the high crime that's coming in, the, the incredible downgrade of this pro, of this country. Well, it was all it was all capsulated in one one rating that, that just happened recently, a couple of days ago. The US debt rating, credit rating was downgraded for the second time in nation's history. It just happened. By the way, can anybody recall when the last time the first time the nation's debt credit rating was downgraded. Who was president the first time the U.S. debt credit rating was downgraded for the first time? Well, if you guess Barack Hussein Obama, you are correct. And here we are now with the second downgrade, the only second time in the nation's history that we've had a credit rating downgrade. And guess what? It happened when Joe Biden is the president. So here we go again. So Obama was the first, and his vice president, now president, is now the second. So these these numbskulls, basically these incompetent, mediocre people, come in and they create public policy to drive down economic numbers, and this is what happens, folks. This is a wake up call to get our fiscal house in order before it's too late. You know, when you look at it, you realize, I mean, Standard and Poor's has a credit rating, Fitch has a credit rating, but. You know, they're based on the country's current and forecasted fiscal status, including things such as debt to uh, GDP and overall economic health to evaluate a country's ability, basically, to pay their debt. So debt held by the public grew from 39% of the GDP in 2008 to over 100% today. Now, I want to say that again because that's important. The debt held by the public grew from 39% of the GDP in 2008. So back in 2008, when Barack Hussein Obama first became president, all right, the debt, okay, the, the debt held by the public grew, was at the time 39%. Today, it's over 100%. 
So the next 30 years, debt is projected to increase to 181% of the GDP. <laughs> Folks, that's insane. And under current law, driven by increased mandatory entitlement spending, interest expenses, and health care costs. Gee, whose fault is this? Mandatory increases to entitlement spending, interest expenses, and health care costs. This is all Democrat public policy. That's what this is. $11 trillion in spending has resulted in record inflation. Interest rate hikes, folks. This is what's going on. It's causing our downgrade, our downward economic downgrade, if you will, our economic spiral, okay? And it's, it's totally self-inflicted. I mean, make no mistake about it. You know, with the annual deficits projected to double and interest costs expected to triple in just 10 years, our nation's financial health is rapidly deteriorating and our debt trajectory it's completely unsustainable. That's a fact. This, look, this is a wake-up call. We got to get our fiscal house in order. You know, the key drivers of the downgrade, of the downgrade okay, the, 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 the key drivers, I mean, you've got one of them, is the debt to GDP expected to rise. That's one driver. We just talked about that. All right? I mean, it's good. They're expected to be at 118% by 2025. The debt ratio is over two and a half times higher than the AAA median of 39.3% of the GDP and AA median of 44.7% of GDP. I mean, trust me, 118% of the GDP, folks, that I'm surprised we even have a AA credit rating at this point. You know, there's another issue that that drove this rating downgrade. It, it was problems on the horizon, uh, the marked increase in general government debt. I mean, for an example due to a failure to address medium-term public spending and revenue challenges. So those challenges that are facing the federal budget are significant, folks. That's the truth. And over the next 10 years, higher increase rate, higher interest rates, and rising debt stock are going to increase the interest service burden while, while an aging population and rising health care costs are going to raise the spending on the elderly, uh, you know, absent any real policy reforms and you know when you got people in charge of public policy who can't who think men can get pregnant i think you know you can expect this to get nothing but worse okay when you got people in charge of public policy who believe an open border is a good thing importing crime is a good thing when they believe that you know you can expect you can expect worse okay in our policy reforms, if you will, public policy coming forward. You can expect the debt increase, the increase, the debt percentage in the GP. You know, mandatory spending woes is another driver. And it was it was basically, I mean, the rise in this mandatory spending on Medicare and Social Security by 1.5% of the GDP. Well, that was the, you know, that basically would cause part of the problem. And obviously recession on the problem as well. Um, you know, I, I think this economy is already in a mild recession and it's going to it's going to continue on next year. You know, but even Standard & Poor's, they did a downgrade, too. And and, uh, you know, basically they, they lowered the long term rating and on the U.S. And they made a comment that that they believe that the, that, that the prolonged controversy over raising the statutory debt ceiling and the, the related fiscal policy debate. That uh, that there's going to be there isn't going to be any progress going forward. They they see this as a big problem, but you know, look, 
debt downgraded because lawmakers and the president failed to adequately address the debt. I mean, that's the fact. What I thought was interesting is Janet, we yell and yell it. Now, Janet, yellow, yelling, okay? The yellow, the yellow uh, Treasury Secretary, yelling. And the Democrats are trying to discredit these downgrades and 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 discount their their admonitions because they're just calling it like they see it. I mean, they're basically trying to say, ah, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. It's a common trope from, you know, I mean, that's what it is in the media is. You know, in the debates between Democrats and Republicans and blah, blah, blah. You know, they're basically downgrading. You say it's no big deal. This is only a temporal thing. Okay. I mean, I, I thought it was interesting that, that Janet Yellen's out there saying, no big deal. Don't panic. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? See, the credit ratings were downgraded, not because Congress debated cutting spending with the dead limit, but because the, res the resulting spending cuts and broader reforms that Biden would agree to were not significant enough to change the fiscal outlook of the country. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. And I want to tell you folks, what, what some of the consequences of a high debt and downgrades of the credit rating, there are consequences, okay? And don't miss this. One of the consequences is an elevated risk of fiscal crisis. And basically, that is a situation where investors lose confidence in the U.S. government's ability to serve and repay its debt causing interest rates to increase abruptly and inflation to spiral upward and other disruptions to occur. I mean, this is what it is. It's bad for economic outlook. It's a not bad economic outcome. And borrowing costs throughout the country is going to rise. So the cost of borrowing money is going to rise, reducing private investment and slowing the growth of economic output. So when you when the downgrade the credit rate, it raises the cost to borrow money. So people can't borrow money, investors can't borrow money, and what that does is it slows the growth of economic output because they can't build that that extra building or that extra whatever. They can't make those purchases they need to do to expand their business. They can't do it. They don't have the money. They can't do it. So they can't grow. I remember when Trump had when Trump had the uh, when Trump had made that new trade deal with the Chinese, and take a drink or something. Bear with me. When Trump had to make that new trade deal in. Uh, with the Chinese, he told them he wanted them to buy, I think it was $20 billion of soy or something. It was a, like a lot of soy. And uh, one of the uh, people working for Trump said, well, sir, that's a lot. I mean, I think you'll be able to buy that. I don't know if our farmers can produce all that. And Trump looked at, at his advisors and said, well, our farmers can do it. They're going to have to buy bigger tractors, but they can do it. Our farmers can produce it. They're going to be called upon to grow more and sell more. That's what they want to do. Let them buy bigger tractors and buy bigger storehouses. Well, anyone that's built and created jobs understands that when a company grows, it creates capital within the company, but it also creates an ability for people to uh, hire new people. So what happens is you actually see companies that are expanding. So they buy, uh, they buy new equipment, they buy new warehouses, they buy new whatever, forklifts, anything they got to do to expand or New research material, new laboratory material. They might buy it. They might up. They might buy up some private industries and hire new people and give people a better job with better growing companies. I mean, I, I whatever it is. I mean, you look at the growth of an economic growth. You can see it's like a flower that blooms. I mean, it starts out that it kind of just expands, and as the the company begins to grow, it becomes to provide more products and services to the public. You know, when a company wants to increase its growth. 
they they find out what their customers want and are willing to pay for and give them more of it. That's what we know and understand with job growth. And in doing that, sometimes you want to borrow money to expand your business so you can, to, you can do more of what give customer more of what they're willing to pay for. Well, when borrowing costs are affected, they can't do that anymore. And the third consequence is interest payments would be would crowd out other budget priorities such as national defense. Your interest payments become so high, you don't have the money to do else. What else you got to do? <laughs> so you can't you can't provide all that. You don't have the ability to do national defense. You don't have the ability to whatever it is you want to try to do. I don't know. I mean, whatever you're trying to figure out and try to try to grow, you know, build new highways or whatever, you know. And then, but national defense is a big deal. So when you don't have the money to expand your national defense, it becomes a problem. And look, these are the consequences of high debt and downgrades to the credit rate. But it's also another one that's, that's another one. You might even go a fourth one is investors in this country. When you, you know, one of the strengths of our country economically is when outside investors want to come here and invest their money in companies here. They want to not just buy businesses here. They want to hire people here. They want to, they want to grow as a part of this country. So they become a part of the country. They become a part of the economic machine of this country. Well, with the downgrades of the credit rating, it makes it more difficult and less appealing for investors around the world to want to come here. So, look, there's ways that we have to address this. I just think we can know this. I mean, if you want to raise this, the debt, you know, if you want to raise the debt, I should say raise our credit rating again and grow the economy, first thing you have to do is stop the spending, okay? Just stop the spending. I mean, you know, we talk about the Berks GOP website. We actually have costs on there. If you go to the Berks GOP website, go to berksgop.com, you actually check out some of the stuff we got on there. But I mean, you know, it's the the cost of illegal immigration, the cost of spending, it's all there. But you got to stop the spending, okay? Uh, you know, when, when you're, you, you, just, you just can't continue to spend money. I mean, $6.1 trillion was added to the debt, according to the Congressional Budget Office, you know, each 10 percentage point change in the federal government's debt to the GDP ratio causes a quarter point change in interest. I mean, each 10 per, each ten percentage point change. I mean, that's just don't miss it. it. Causes a quarter point change in the interest rates. So we got to stop the spending. Um, we got to address the drivers of the debt. Like, for instance, cuts to non-defense discretionary spending. You know, 15 percent of the total federal spending, if you will. All right, uh, you know the the Fiscal Responsibility Act. I mean, this is what this is already done. We have a law in the books called the Fiscal Responsibility Act. It's a modest improvement to the medium term fiscal outlook. But I mean, the bottom line is again to to address the underlying debt problem. Uh, you know, Republicans basically you have to get the you have to get people in Washington that that understand that the first off that is a problem. And right now, you've got a lot of Democrats out there who don't think that is a problem. We even got some Republicans that don't think that is a problem. But we have to get people to agree that that is a problem. And then that, and they're basically, to, to, because they see it as a problem, want to slow the growth of the debt. And obviously, the spending. I mean, that's what has to happen. Okay, another thing we have to do is grow the economy. We just have to economically grow. Economic growth is going to be an essential component of reducing the debt to GDP ratio. 1% of GDP growth over 10 years reduces the deficit by $3 trillion. trillion. <clears throat> so if you can grow the GDP by 3 or 4% like it was doing under Trump, then you're reducing the, the, the deficit <laughs> over 10 years <clears throat> by probably about 10, about 10 to $15 trillion. I mean, 
again, growing the, the, the economy is going to help on that. And then fixing the broken budget process. I mean, right now we have a broken budget process that's going to continue to yield bad results until we get it fixed. But Republicans are repeatedly warning um, Biden and the other Democrats during this debt ceiling negotiations they've been having. They've been repeatedly warning them that their unbridled spending is not only going to weaken our economy, but jeopardize the future. And yet that's been, you know, they don't listen. Nobody really seems to care. You know, it's funny. I think James Madison, I, I think I heard it. I think my other James Madison was one of these, one of our previous uh, heroes, if you will, of the American uh, growth of the American founding, if you will. Madison was there. I think it was him that said this, a public debt is a public curse. And it's time for political courage to save the country and our children's future. And I just think, I mean, he called he called public debt a public curse. And that's the truth of it. And I just, like I said, I think, and here on this show, we think it's time for political courage to save the country. We reverse the, reverse the, the curse. And it's just amazing to me. But this is what's happening. So, you know, when you see the job market, you see the jobs are, oh, well, we created a, we, 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 we only created 170,000 jobs. Oh, my goodness, you know. And, okay, well, it's worse than that. We created 170,000 jobs. We had 350,000 get out. So the net difference is 180,000 people actually were, were our, our workforce reduced by another 180,000 this month. Every month since January, our workforce in this country has been reduced by between 150 to 200,000 people every month. That's why I can tell you that we have a workforce that's about one and a half million people less than it did, and it was in January. We know that. I made a comment on last week's show about how this is the, these are the lowest employment numbers we've seen in this country in a long, long time. I thought it was amazing that people like Janet Yellen, uh, you know, and, and others, uh, you know, Biden himself and others <laughs> that were bragging about, you know, the 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 the, the you know the the the, 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 the 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 consumer confidence improvements to a two-year high. I thought that was amazing. You actually had people, and this is what the news let them get away with. This is how. When you when I ask the question on this show, do we have an America First media? Well, that's a rhetorical question. Anyone can answer that question with this. Well, with this, okay. If we had an America First media, and then we had people that were in charge of public policy bragging about a two-year high on consumer confidence, we would hit that between the eyes. That's sort of like that's like that's like a bullseye. That's like a, that's like hitting a baseball on a tee. They call those a tee shot. Um, you, you just can't miss it. You can't miss it. The bottom line is, folks, that's an easy, that's an easy hit for any 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 reporter, America First reporter, because you immediately would say something like, so you would say that you're comparing the success we're having, the consumer confidence rating as right now, being at a two-year high because as of two years ago, it was a record lows. I would follow that up by saying, we're still at record lows on consumer confidence. Would you not agree with that? Oh, but we're at a two-year high. But where were we on this four years ago, three years ago? Our consumer confidence was at an all-time high or near all-time high. I believe consumer confidence was actually at an all-time high in the last 60 years. It was at uh, it, it was at its peak in the mid-80s, believe it or not, under Reagan. But Trump had consumer confidence at a very high point. And, I mean, when you've got people that are bragging about consumer confidence at a two-year high, we need to hit. We need to help these people out of political power, okay? And we need to. And we need to be going to going to the precincts, going to the polls, and helping these people get unelected. Because I'll tell you, that's the wake up call for everybody. These people are absolutely incompetent. Absolutely incompetent. 
I, I just think that's an amazing thing. And I just wanted to bring that up. I, I thought it was amazing because we're talking about it. <clears throat> we're talking about the fact that we had people in Washington bragging about what they're doing. And it's just not. I mean, look, you got Maine's governor right now. You got the governor of Maine wanting nearly 100,000 more people for, for businesses in Maine. So he's asking for migrants to, you know, to come in there, illegal immigrants to come to me. I don't know what that's all about. I mean, I, you know, I mean, unless the, unless the American employment numbers are actually lower, and that's the evidence they are. You got these governors that realize their workforces are shrinking. But I want to get into a little bit on, on Biden's health and his mental health is worse than his physical health. I think that's worth talking about. You know, I, I think it's worth mentioning, okay? Uh, you know, when you look at, I mean, when you watch when you watch Biden walking out of the of, of the, the helicopter, when you watch him, you just kind of watch him. You can you can you know when you, you you see he can't walk up a flight of stairs. Okay, you know he hasn't gone down. You know he hasn't gone gone down going down a flight, but going up a flight, he seems to have a problem. You know when when you see he can't go up a flight of stairs, and you know I mean you can see he's he's got some physical problems with. But it's his mental, I think, issues that are the most that are worse than his physical because because you know you know that's that's really the issue I think it is, and we have to realize okay Biden makes it to the general election next year and again you know while he expects to probably face you know Trump will probably face Biden in, the, in the, that next year when you see that happening you know you're 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 understanding but you know when you when you see that when you see that happening you realize. You know that no other Democrats are really, really want to run against Biden right now. They, they, he's not going to be facing very any Democrats. So no matter who he faces in November, assuming if he wins the GOP nomination, Trump is likely going to be, you know, it's going to be right. He's going to be ready for him. You know, I mean, it, it's the truth. I mean, Trump's going to be ready for him. Trump made a couple of comments on it. He was like, he said, uh, wh whoever it is, he says it's okay because I don't, I don't like to predict that. What Trump doesn't like to predict. He would say that as anybody. Uh, Anybody that would like that, but he, you know, he basically wants to say that if, if it's Biden, he's running a make out book guess there, he's going to be ready for. Him. But it is, it is basically health problems and cognitive issues. What you're seeing a lot of time, and, and don't miss this, is that you're seeing a lot of the, uh, you know, when you're seeing people that have cognitive decline, how that happens. You know, Biden, he was talking with the Israeli Prime Minister. He was actually talking with these people, having a State Department meeting, reading his statements from a cue card. He was reading them. He was reading the statements from a cue card. I couldn't believe it. And, he had, and you know, and and literally, I mean, he fell asleep. He literally took like a like a mid 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 nap. He kind of like he went quiet for a little bit. He kind of just went kind of in a somber mode. It was look. This is what happens. Is that you know they they really uh, it's just amazing. I mean, it, he just doesn't hold it. And how is he going to be able to make decisions on a global front concerning public policy? How can he do that? How can a guy with this kind of cognitive decline and the lack of mental crispness, uh, you know, handle the handle foreign policy, especially when the people around him are snorting cocaine all day? Okay, I mean, you got cocaine being found at, at the crime scene, the crime scene that was identified in the West Wing. Okay, I mean, you have that happening, and and now you've got old Biden with cognitive decline. You wonder whose coke it was they found on the floor. But never fear, we got a bunch of we got all Biden here to make sure everything's okay, and he's sleeping between he's sleeping between cue cards. I mean, the real tragedy of all of this is that you know we're trying to solve the problem in the Ukraine. We have a we're on the verge of a world war right now. We're actually got people 
who are being sold a bill of goods. I think what's interesting is I talked to some people who think it's still a good idea to, to help the Ukraine. And as I explained to these people, why do you think it's a good idea? And they 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 respond by saying, well, you know, it's it's a democracy. We have to fight for democracy over there. We have to fight freedom over there. I said, okay, well, that's fair. That's a fair statement. But let me let me ask you, did you know that Zelensky just outlawed elections? Well, I didn't know that. Well, yeah, he outlawed elections. It, so if you don't know that the that the noble carrier, if you will, of democracy in the Ukraine is, is Zelensky and he just outlawed elections, well, then if you don't know that, then obviously you don't have all your facts. And if you don't understand that there's no men left in the Ukraine to fight with, there's no soldiers left in the Ukraine, that they've been absolutely decimated. They had, they were a country that had 60 million people back in the 90s, and they're estimated to have about 18 million today. They're a country that has nobody left in it. There's nobody left in the Ukraine. All those people left through massive, you know, through massive, uh, you know, just just evacuations. Those people just left. Those people just left that country over the course of uh, 35 years. I mean, literally, they they went from 60 million people to under 20 million, and they had an army that was had a few hundred thousand men in it. And now there's nobody left. So they got they're getting munitions from the U.S. They're getting tanks. They're getting planes. They're getting whatever cluster bombs. But it's like the Japanese in World War II, you know, the Japanese had planes left, but they didn't have anybody to fly the planes, anybody to drive the tanks, anybody to fire the guns. The Japanese didn't have any soldiers left. They didn't have any pilots left. They were decimated. This is where the Ukraine is today. They got weaponry coming in. They got European countries now that are giving away their tanks and they're saying to well, Biden right now, look, we can't give them any more tanks. We don't have any more tanks to fight with. We're putting tanks out there. They don't have people to drive them. They don't have experienced people that can drive these tanks. So what's happening is they're putting this stuff in the battlefield. And again, there's nobody out there to help, you know, to, to do it. Now, I remember we had a piece on this show. We were talking about the tanks, the Abrams tanks. They're like the best tanks in the world. And we were talking about what's it take to make a good tank crew? Well, a tank crew about, I don't know, four or five people it is. Everybody has a role to play in the tank and they all have mastered their roles. And, Basically, they understand what it's like to handle in a battle situation what that tank does. And they know how the what how the tank operation, they know what it does, they know how to maneuver the tank, they know the strategies that work, they know how to work the tank. It's not like it's not just they had six weeks of crash course training or six months of training. These people have been not only trained in these tanks, but they fought in these tanks. They've done battle simulations as well as actual battles in these tanks. So they understand how these tanks work how to utilize these tanks in a battle situation as effective weaponry to win a battle. So when you put these tanks over there in that theater in the Ukraine and you don't have experienced tank operators and tank crews, then all you have is a weaponry without ex without the trained expertise to run it. Now, any fifth grader knows that that's not a recipe for success in a battle zone. Anybody but O'Biden himself, only O'Biden would think that's a home run. Folks, there's something wrong. These are the people making public policy, trying to keep us out of a World War III. The guy that thinks there's Abram taste can work and be functional in the hands of people that don't know how to use them. This is what should be driving us in sense here. This is what's going on. So we have a situation now where the Russians have won the war. And Biden has realized that Ukraine has nobody left to fight with. And instead of trying to settle the matter with the Russians... And forcing the Ukrainians to say, let's get this settled. And accepting the fact that the 
that the European country borders are just changing again and again. Here they go, changing the borders again. How many times in the last thousand years have the have the European countries' borders have changed? How about in the last two hundred years? How have the borders changed in Europe in the last two hundred years or a hundred years? Think about it. We no longer have a Yugoslavia. Okay, that's gone. I mean, you can look. You can look at the European countries today and look at their borders today and compare it to you know fifty or hundred years ago. Folks, I'm telling you, you know, the borders change all the time in Europe. They're, it's like a, it's a, it's just an ever-changing thing. It's ubiquitous. These borders always change because you're dealing with people. You're dealing with people that are from different ethnic backgrounds. So what you have in the Ukraine is you actually have a part of the Ukraine that is regioned, if you will, populated by Russian citizenry who do not want to be part of the Ukraine. This is what you have. Then you have the Ukrainians that were probably mistreating them somewhat. Of course, you're not getting that in the news. But there's things that have been going on with these people that have caused problems. And the Russians were, were outraged over it. So the Russians decided to go in there. So they took the Russian area, the part of the Ukraine that is inhabited by Russians. That's it. Now, they could settle this matter once and for all and be done with it. I mean, you know, and, but they don't want to do it. The Ukrainians have lost the war. They've lost and all we're doing is prolonging it. And I guess there are some people, believe it or not, that are hoping for something worse to erupt from this. And I can tell you, folks, wars, world wars have started on matters of incompetent leadership. And dare I say, we, we probably can say we have some of the most incompetent leadership on planet Earth today than we've ever had at any time in the history of this, of this world. And it's right here in this country. Again, we have we have President of the United States falling asleep on the Israeli Prime Minister and reading from cue cards every day. And you've got people in the, in the West Wing in the Situation Room storing cocaine on drugs. This is what we've got running this country. Well, folks, we got to leave it there. Thanks to all of our listeners for being with us today and spending time with us on this beautiful Saturday afternoon morning right here on AM Radio 11 AWFYL. See you next week on The Point, folks. See you later on today for our show. The Watchmen will be on at 1 o'clock. Got a great show lined up. See you then. See you next week on The Point, folks. I'm Clay Brees. Goodbye for now.